0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Ted Burnham. This is KGNU's How on Earth for Tuesday, August 7th, 2012.
0: It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter.
1: Coming up, the science of beer cans and how canning technology is rolling out to Colorado's smallest microbreweries. Literally. We'll talk with Pat Hartman of Longmont Company Mobile Canning and Alexis Foreman of Boulder's Wild Goose
0: Engineering. But first... Earthquakes, Curiosity on Mars, Science History, it's a look at the news in science.
1: New research indicates that oil and gas production can cause earthquakes. But what's causing the quakes is not drilling wells or cracking rocks through fracking or even pumping out fuel. Ironically, the most earthquake-prone step of oil and gas production is one that's meant to clean up the environment. It's called fluid injection and it involves taking the dirty water that accumulates during drilling and pumping it deep underground. Cliff Froelich, lead researcher on the new study, says fluid injection probably increases earthquakes because it lubricates underground faults.
2: The usual model of these injection-induced earthquakes is that there's a fault that's stuck There's a stress on that fault that might have been around for hundreds or thousands or millions of years, but you pump water in there and it reduces the friction and so the fault slips.
1: In Froelich's study, wells with the most injection fluids generally had the most nearby earthquakes, but not always, perhaps due to differences in the rock formations. As for how intense these earthquakes can be, Froelich says the area of Texas that he's analyzed gets human-induced tremors that are laughingly small, and there's a natural reason why.
2: In most areas, the biggest human-caused earthquakes aren't any bigger than the biggest natural earthquakes.
1: And that makes sense.
2: Faults that might slip either naturally or because they're helped by humans, you're getting the same size earthquakes. Northeast Texas, where I did my study, the biggest natural earthquakes are magnitude three and a half or four. So I'm not at all surprised that the earthquakes we're seeing are that size and smaller.
1: If wastewater's were injected near a hot zone, such as San Francisco, Froelich agrees that, theoretically, the size of the earthquakes might change. Truth
2: is, the kind of earthquakes we've been having in the Fort Worth area are little earthquakes. They're like little storms. I mean, a thunderstorm with a big boom and some rain and rattles windows and you talk about it the next day is fun. A hurricane with 200-mile-an-hour winds is not fun. A little earthquake, a magnitude 3 or 3.5, actually is fun. It rattles windows and might knock something off your shelf and you talk about it. A magnitude 6 or 7 is not fun.
1: Froelich adds that back in the 60s, in Denver, scientists speculated that fluid injection might produce thousands of small, safe earthquakes, which might reduce the chance of a dangerous one. But they never tested the idea, because if injecting fluids to relieve pressure was ever followed by the big one, then whoever did it would spend the rest of their lives in court. For now, Froelich says we need to fund more studies. His study appears this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences.
0: If there was a gold medal for interplanetary gymnastics, it surely would be awarded to the Mars Science Laboratory mission for its successful approach, execution, and sticking the landing of the Curiosity rover on the surface of Mars last Sunday night. What can be described as perhaps the most complex Rube Goldberg landing system imaginable actually worked. The entry, descent, and landing process included slamming into the Martian atmosphere, a process called aerobraking, at 13,000 miles per hour, protected only by a thin heat shield, then opening up a parachute, then releasing the heat shield, then firing retro rockets, then gently lowering the rover on a tether called a sky crane until it is on the surface, then finally cutting the tether so the rocket part of the spacecraft could fly away and not crash into the rover. And by all reports, it worked perfectly, delivering the Curiosity rover on target near the foot of a mountain three miles tall and 96 miles in diameter inside Gale Crater. Also, just like the Olympics, where the events of the day already happened, but you don't know the results until you watch them on the delayed broadcast later that evening, the mission scientists and engineers had to wait an additional 14 nail-biting minutes to find out if the landing was successful because the distance to Mars means it takes about 14 minutes for radio signals to reach Earth. Considering the cheers, high fives, and emotions that erupted in the mission control room when the first radio signals and pictures were received, the wait was well worth it. The complexity of the mission is hard to overstate. The design of the rover and its delivery system had to withstand the vibration and force of launch the cold, airless environment of space for many months, then the heat and the 13G force of entry through the Martian atmosphere. And of course, it actually has to do things once it gets to the surface. Curiosity is the largest rover ever delivered to Mars, and it carries 10 science instruments with a total mass 15 times as large as the science payloads on the Mars rover's Spirit and Opportunity. Curiosity's tools include a laser-firing instrument for determining the composition of rocks from a distance, a drill and scoop to gather soil and powdered samples of rock interiors, and a suite of what are effectively small laboratories to analyze the samples. So congratulations to everyone on the mission team for a successful delivery of our newest ambassador to the Red Planet. And while we're on the subject, on this day in 1976, the Viking
1: 2 mission entered orbit around Mars, but the lander wouldn't touch down until September 3rd because the mission team needed time to use the camera on the orbiter to select a landing site.
0: Up next, beer canned science. We'll talk about the on the go canning movement that's sweeping the world of craft breweries here in a moment on How on Earth from KGNU.
3: What is the malted liquor? What gets you drunk or ficker? What comes in bottles or in cans? Beer. Can't get a knob of it! Oh, we really love it beer! Makes think I'm a man! Beer. I can kiss hug it! Beer. But i chug it! Get my belly out of here! Holly, I Come on, damn it for Do it for me, throw it for me, feed it to me, speed it to me! Beer. The most wonderful drink in the world!
1: Hoorah! You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Ted Burnham. If you're a beer drinker, you've probably noticed that there are a lot of cans on liquor store shelves these days. Here in Colorado and elsewhere, more and more breweries are choosing to put their beer in cans. There are some good reasons for that, which we'll get to in a moment. But for the smallest of small breweries, canning can still be a real challenge. It's expensive and it takes up a lot of space. Enter Mobile Canning, a Longmont-based company that offers brewers a solution to both of those problems. Put the canning line on a truck and take it to any brewery that needs it. Joining us now in our Boulder studio is Pat Hartman, co-founder of Mobile Canning. Welcome, Pat. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Of course. And of course, designing a fully automated canning line is no small feat to say nothing of designing one that can be packed into a delivery truck. Also joining us in the studio today is Alexis Foreman, Chief Technology Officer of Wild Goose Engineering, a Boulder-based company that makes, among other things, portable canning equipment. Good morning. Good morning. So, uh, welcome to you both and let's start uh, with some of the basics. Pat, why would anyone want their beer in a can?
3: You know, cans these days have, uh, have evolved uh, back from, you know, your father's beer of that light beer that uh, you'd have that pull tab where it tasted metallic and uh, the way the, the, the cans are being developed and engineered today, they're actually a superior product to, to glass. Uh, two bottles where you get zero UV light that is penetrating the can you get zero oxygen uh, that is being introduced Um, and so we all know that UV light breaks down uh, the composition of of beer mostly hops and today in the craft beer industry there's a lot of hops out there Um, so uh, you know glass uh, is also prohibited in a lot of a lot of areas aluminum can go to the beach to the park to the golf course when you're out sitting around a campfire after you've uh... you know hiked in fifteen miles a nice can of good quality beer is uh... is what you're craving at that point
1: now uh... There, there is a myth that uh... that that the cans change the taste of the beer and i understand that's that's not really true that is not true
3: uh... the way that the uh... the manufacturers you know one being ball corporation here uh, right in town uh... they actually are putting a lining that separates any aluminum from the product uh, so when the beer is sitting in a can or any other beverage for that matter, uh, you're getting the uh, that protective barrier from the aluminum. Whereas 20, 30 years ago, uh, it was basically just a steel can that now you were uh, you were tasting that metallic. Uh, there's been a lot of blind taste tests between the exact same beer out of a
1: bottle and a can, and there's a lot of people that cannot tell the difference. So a lot of good reasons to choose a can. Um, I should say I've talked to a bunch of brewers in the last few days, and while they say cans are great. Bottles are probably not going away. Consumers will still have some choice in this matter uh, from a lot of breweries. Um, so, Pat, how did you and your business partner come up with the idea for a mobile canning business? So, it started last year. I uh,
3: I was working on a plan to start a brewery. You know, just like every other person on the corner these days, and I just couldn't make it. I just couldn't make it come true. And I, uh, you know, longtime home brewer. Uh, and uh, I was advancing my homebrewing skills out in uh, UC Davis has an uh, uh, intensive homebrewing class. And uh, I was out there and talking to some of the other brewers and uh, started hearing a little bit about the mobile bottling type industry. Uh, the wine industry has been doing it for a long time where if you think about wine and, and the production, you know, they don't package, they don't bottle their, uh, their wine. 365 days out of the year it's usually a concentrated area so to have that equipment sitting sitting in their facility didn't make sense Uh, so I started thinking well cans are the way to go these days and it is a superior package and people are starting to migrate to them at a rapid rate why not put together a mobile canning operation and help out some of these smaller breweries that are having trouble getting into packaging and uh, and, and basically uh, putting up the upfront capital where we can now help them get going. So Ron and I uh, hooked
1: up last summer, and we, we went at it full, full bore, and now here we are a year later. Excellent. Uh, so Alexis, your firm designed the equipment that mobile canning uses um, and also designed uh, or, or uh, similar equipment's been purchased by other mobile canning businesses in uh, the Pacific Northwest and California.
4: Uh, how did you get into this business of beer canning? Uh, well, we were a uh, prototype engineering house that was next door to Upslope Brewery. Um, they had a major throughput problem with their their canning system. They'd never even considered going into bottles. They went straight into cans for all their production. And uh, you know, we were next door, so we kind of treated their tasting room like our conference room, and they... Kind of treated our shop like their toolbox, and we became good friends. And uh, um, basically, they came in and said, "Look, you know, we're having a really hard time uh, getting back to the bottom line. What can you guys do to speed this up for us?" So, over the process of about a year, we came in and, um, you know, well, you know, we looked at this, you know, we can speed that up, and well, you know, if we did this, we can speed that up, and then. There were a few things where I was like, "Okay, well, if we're going to go any faster, we're going to automate this. We got to start from scratch and uh, and really do something." And it came time to you know put pen to paper, and you know they they told us basically what the market was, and we did a lot of work on it ourselves, and then said, "You know, there's there's a good opportunity here, so maybe we need to start doing this." Uh, we had uh, their first line running in I don't know November two thousand nine, I guess, like a couple years ago, and. Um, and basically then have since greatly refined it all and uh, now I think we've got just about 30 breweries online um, 30 systems out there we've got uh, you know a couple people doing the mobile stuff um, you know Ron and Pat came to us uh, early on in the uh, in the process and we were real quick to tell them it wasn't possible and it wasn't going to work. And uh, thankfully, they were persistent about all of it. Um, and, and, you know, we all learned a lot in the process. And uh, we've got a great system for them now that uh, seems to be doing really well.
1: So uh, so your firm uh, designs and builds everything in-house and... Uh, uh you do that all up, up here in Boulder.
4: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We have a full, full CNC machine shop and a welding shop. We do all the panels. Um, you know, that was one of the things that we'd been doing from the get go. We'd always been very strong believers in making what we design, and it was honestly what um, made it possible for us to do what we did. Uh, having our, you know, we were basically a, uh, an engineering department and manufacturing department for hire. Uh, so, when we were doing work that didn't involve uh, heavy machine work, we had a lot of time to refine the canning line and really develop our own product there. So, well, you know, it was great. We'd do, you know, design work in the morning, have the parts out after lunch, go try them out in the afternoon, and then uh, knew, know no we had to do the next day. And uh, it's a design cycle that was so short that, um, you know, I feel like it would be very hard for someone else to do what we did uh, in the time that
1: we did it. Sounds like an exciting process. So, can you guys walk us through the steps that a can goes through on one of these machines?
3: Uh, sure. So we start with uh, with a, a blank can, basically an aluminum uh, bright can. And what we do is uh, there's there's something called depalletization, which basically you've got a pallet of cans that need to uh, need to come off, need to get single file, and need to go through the process. Um, and and part of what we do uh, in in partnership here with Wild Goose is uh, we've got a twist rinse uh, that's, that's uh, embedded in the, in the entire process that basically will clean the inside of the cans. And it depends on, uh, on the brewery and depends on their uh, specifications, whether we just uh, are spraying just water just to kind of clean out some of the dust or we're putting an actual sanitizer into the can. Uh, but then once we spray that, the can is inverted upside down to drain, and then it's reverted uh, back uh, upright. Right from there, it comes right on to a conveyor belt that uh, then will drop in uh, two or four prongs to, uh, to basically give a CO2, a CO2 purge. So we basically fill the cans full of CO2 before we fill them with beer. And uh, what that does is help eliminate uh, oxygen that's in the beer because oxygen is another, uh, another one that can, uh, that can severely damage beer uh, on the shelf and over time. Then from there, we drop in the, uh, the fill heads that are filling from the bottom up and basically, what we're doing, since we fill with CO2, we're pushing uh, the CO2 up, which is then pushing the oxygen out, and then we get a nice layer of head or foam on top. And then from there, we drop uh, an end or a lid on, and uh, after that, it goes into what's called the seamer, that now does a uh, a double seam to basically uh, crimp the end onto the body of the can and make that tight uh, air airtight seal. And then from there, it goes through various packaging, uh, whether we're going into 12-pack boxes, we're going into four-packs, or we're going into six-packs. Um, and then it's off onto the pallet and stacked and into the cooler for the brewery. And then at the end of the day, we pack up and take all the machinery with us and leave them with the finished beer. <laughs> Sounds
1: so neat and tidy. For
3: the most part. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. So we have a question from a listener here that came in. Uh, Aki asks, what is the lining? Is there BPA in the lining uh, of the cans? So that, that's
3: a great question. We uh, we get that question uh, quite often. And um, when you start talking about the lining, you start talking about the technology that has evolved over the last 15 to 20 years from these major can manufacturers. Um, the lining is uh, does contain uh, some BPA and it it really depends on uh, you know the stance that everyone has out there on how they feel Uh, to date nothing has been proved that it is uh, you know truly harmful uh, at least from the studies that I've seen and the manufacturers that I'm talking to Um, but it truly is the uh, the best product to protect that beverage or that uh, that material, and when you really look at it, it's, uh, you know it's not just uh, the small portion of cans that we are using from mobile canning's perspective. Uh, it's it's the larger scale of beverage cans in the industry today, with over 150 million beverage cans being produced per year in the United States, which. Is quite a bit,
1: and those might be
4: used for juice or soda as well as yeah. beer. And, and the yeah. same drinks. same can technology exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Any beverage you get that's in a can is going to have the same lining in it. Yeah.
1: Okay, um, so let's let's go back to your uh, your your canning system. Was it uh, was it difficult to learn to use the equipment?
3: You know, it really wasn't uh, with you know with Wild Goose being here in town, which was great for us, and, and they're great to help us with the training and and uh, an uptick of the uh, of the machine. But we really, uh, yeah, we really kind of hit the ground running. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances. It's it's definitely not as easy as I'm making it sound. But um, it's uh, you know with with uh, these guys helping us over at Wild Goose and, and us understanding uh, technology, machinery, we were able to, to understand the nuances of the machine pretty pretty easily.
1: So Alexis, how, uh, how much human input do it, does a system like this require, whether it's the, the mobile system or, I know you've built a lot of stable systems that just sit at a brewery and they use it more frequently.
4: Um, yeah, it's not. Uh, it's like any piece of automation. Um, you know, no matter how smart we make robots and whatnot, you still need to watch them. So there's always <laughs> uh, always got to be somebody keeping an eye on um, at least one portion of the line at all times. Um, you know, occasionally it'll miss a lid or a candle fall over or something like that, to where it'll require uh, operator intervention. Um, but you know, I've, I've also seen plenty of places that have a uh, a chair for that guy to sit in, so um, they do pretty well. It uh, it really depends on the beer and, uh, you know, the, the conditions of the day. Uh, there are obviously a lot of uh, requirements for the beer to be um, in an ideal packaging situation. It has to be cold. It has to be, um, you know, you want to be close to the tanks, et cetera. So, I mean, I don't know. We can get into CO2 solubilities and whatnot, but as things <laughs> warm up, you get foam, and foam screws everything up. So um, it, uh, you know that's that's really where it is and um, yeah so we have people watching it we typically have two or three people running the line there will be somebody at the front end and at the front of the machine sort of making sure the cans come in and do what they need to do and then there's usually plenty of people um, you know on the on the packaging end of it because the machines put out beer pretty quickly Um, so on one of our faster lines we usually have two people six packing uh, just just so that they can keep up
1: uh, so that leads into my next question: How much beer comes off uh, one of these canning lines? How many cans per minute or cases per hour? How do you measure?
4: Uh, we do cans per minute mostly. Um, we have a couple of different systems. We have some manual ones that'll do about ten cans a minute um, up to. We just upgraded these guys up to a forty can a minute system. I don't know if you've seen it yet because your conditions are never quite optimal. But right, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, we've
3: been we've been a little on the warmer side, but we have yeah. seen thirty six, thirty seven cans yeah. a minute. You know, in in the non ideal uh, temperature ranges, but okay. yeah, it's 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 definitely fast. It's definitely can output. You know, we've uh, you know we're consistently putting out over 500 cases a day uh, for you know for some of the breweries that we're working with. That's quite a lot of beer. It is
4: absolutely.
1: Uh, and how many breweries are are using Wild Goose equipment right now?
4: Uh, we're just. About, I have to. I haven't had a, a close count. We're very close to 30. Um, I know we've got a few, you know, we've got a, a significant backlog as well, so there's probably another another 10 on the board, or 10 or 12 on the board, something like that, I haven't had an accurate count lately, but uh, yeah, we've got a lot of breweries in Colorado, we've got, um, you know, or as far away as Alaska, I think we're just about to ship one to Fiji um, in the next couple of days, so we're, we're um, branching out, and uh, we've got almost all four corners of the country, we've got Florida, we've got uh, someone up in Pennsylvania, um, we've got a couple systems in Oregon. And Pat, how
3: many uh, customers do you have with mobile canning? You know, we're consistently canning for uh, nine breweries here in the local area in Colorado, and we've got another half dozen that are working on label approval right now.
0: Yeah,
1: no shortage of breweries around here. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's great to see local companies working together and working with other local companies in the brewing industry. Do you guys have a favorite style of beer?
3: Whoa. All of them? Does that work? <laughs> cold? Uh, yeah. yeah, cold and all of them. Uh, that one's a tough one. I, I, I do prefer, uh, I, I like IPAs. I like, you know, a lager on a nice hot summer day.
4: Yeah, IPAs are a good sour, uh, something like that. Depends on, depends on the weather, I guess. Sure. Uh, Got to keep up with the seasons. That's well, it. thank you both. We've
1: been talking with Pat Hartman of Mobile Canning in Longmont and Alexis Foreman of Wild Goose Engineering in Boulder. Thanks to both of you. Thank, thank you. you.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. Today's show was produced by Ted Burnham. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from South Park. And thanks to Shelley Schlender for
1: contributing a headline and to Jim Pullen for running the board. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the
0: iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone, find us there. Send your feedback to KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For Hell on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Ted Burnham.